Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Our guest today is Monique Melton, founder of the Shine Bright School. I initially found Monique's work on social media and I was immediately drawn in because she has a brilliant way of forcing critical shifts in perspective. Her approach to anti-racism led me to think differently and deeper about my own unconscious biases, how I show up in my relationships with my black women friends, and the ways that I can still be more cognizant of the larger historical framework, systemic inequities, and beliefs that we've all inherited and internalized to varying degrees. I'm so grateful to Monique for the ways her work has helped me to question what am I holding internally? and for the invaluable impact that line of questioning has had. In my conversation with Monique today, she shares the questions that she's explored in her own life, reflections on her friendships with white women, including her relationship with her best friend, and a few lessons she's learned as a parent. She also talks about why it's so important not to get stuck in shame when you're doing this work, and why we need compassion and curiosity to acknowledge that we often hold beliefs and systems that we didn't establish and that don't align with our true values, but that we've internalized nonetheless. This is what propels us out of a shame spiral and into healing and action. So the last thing I'll say before we get to today's conversation is, Monique is such a joy. She also made me laugh a lot today. Let's get to it. First of all, it is so good to see you. You too. And I'm so happy that we're doing this because I feel like this has been a couple years in the making and finally- It's been a long time coming. And finally we're together. So here we are. Here we are. I think it might be helpful if we could start a little bit with your background, because I believe you're sociology and psychology. Is that right? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So will you, will you talk a little bit about, you know, what your concentration was in school and then kind of how that has transmogrified into your work today? I'll start with high school because high school is where a lot of my curiosity sparked around the social sciences. I had, you know, a really great, for example, anthropology teacher and that just sparked my interest there. So when and I you went grew to up college, where? I grew up in St. Louis in the Midwest. Okay. So my and my husband and I met in high school. Oh, sweet. Weightlifting class. Wow. <laughs> I have to tell you, our saying is that we've been spotting each other ever since. Come on. (laughs) It's so cute. Okay. But yeah, so college, I studied sociology, social sciences. And because I decided to get married young, I was 20 years old when I got married, we, I transferred schools. And so I didn't finish my degree where I originally started. And that shift around like credits and all that kind of stuff. So I finished with a social science degree emphasizing in sociology and psychology. So I love the study of of people, of culture, of language, of customs, of beliefs, and understanding also like how we think about things, how we come to establish our patterns and our thought processes. It's just always been a really intriguing thing for me. And so, out of college though, I actually started a company doing makeup. I was a professional makeup artist for like a decade. I wanted to be a celebrity makeup artist. And I did that for about a decade. And after having my son, I wanted to do work that didn't require me to have to leave the home in order to be able to do it. And so I started thinking about things that I'm really good at and what I want to do. And Prior to that decision, I had produced a couple bridal shows and I was like, okay, I know I'm really good at marketing. I know I'm really good at business. I understand sociology, understand the psychology of things. So I started doing business brand development coaching for small businesses. And in doing that, I saw the glaring just need for diversity and equity and anti-racism education. And so the longer I did that and saw that, and and as my son was getting older and there continued to be more police brutality and just more and more things happening, for me, it felt like I needed to make a shift and focus directly on anti-racism education. And so I stopped taking all business clients and I said, okay, I'm going to create classes and programs to teach people about anti-racism, how to commit to this work, how to do this work as a daily practice. And that was quite, that has been quite the roller coaster, but that's where, that's where I've landed now. You know, I wrote a book and I'm writing a book now and I've, you know, done a lot of things in between speaking, consulting, but now we have the Shine Bright School, which is a global community of people who are committing to doing this work. And it's, it's, it's been a journey. It's been Mm -hmm. a journey. When you started to identify these systemic gaps and things that needed to be addressed and you, you know, you sort of like identified it like a white space, right? Like in, cause you had a business lens on, you were helping with marketing and businesses. Was there a process 
whereby you had to identify your own biases or like what what was that work like for you internally? Like, did, were you surprised by unconscious biases you had? I, I just wonder if being an American in general, you know, we're so inculcated with these generations of ideas and we don't even have a, a, a deep awareness of or any awareness of. That's a really great question. I started getting really curious. The, the place where I sparked a lot of curiosity first and it just unraveled everything was around religion. So I was a very, very, very devout Christian. I almost went to the, to study to like to seminary school. I was you, me and Jesus walking hand in hand. And so <laughs> besties. <laughs> and if you had told me then that I would be where I am now, where I no longer practice Christianity, I would have been like, you don't know me. <laughs> Get out of here. You no longer <laughs> practice or you no longer believe? That's an interesting distinction. I, I, I put a, I put like a, a little extract next to it. A little, how do you say that word? I, I don't believe, what is it? As Asterix. Asterix. Yes. I, I almost <laughs> want to say extract, like vanilla extract. <laughs> we'll put some vanilla extract next to it. That too. works too. <laughs> yeah, I love vanilla. It's good. But I don't believe how I used to believe. I'm still exploring. So maybe um, like the blind faith part? Oof, I was so devout. Does that mean you've allowed yourself more questioning? In oh, your <laughs> Gwen, let me tell you something. When I told, when I tell you, I started questioning everything. Wow, wow. So I got married young, for example. Mm -hmm. And I technically saved myself for marriage. Mom, don't listen to this. But I technically... <laughs> I technically saved myself for marriage. And 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 I use that language because that's very much the language you're taught, you know, to use. Mm -hmm. He's my first everything, like, you know, all these kinds of things. And so I started even thinking like, it, do I want monogamy? Is that for me? And did I want it because I felt like that was what I was supposed to do? Or did I come to choose that because that's what I truly want? Mm -hmm. And my husband, I'll never forget us. We were on vacation, just the, this, the two of us. And I was like, babe, I want to talk about this. And he, he, bless, bless his heart. But he, you know, he was like trying really hard to hold space for that without judgment and all those things. But I think he was also scared of maybe where I was leading to, like, what was right. I, what was I wanting to explore? And uh, I, I realized without needing to explore that that's not for like, I, I do want monogamy, mm -hmm. but that's what I mean. Like everything, like, why did I want to become a mom? What, like everything was just open for interrogation. And the initial part, like questioning Christianity and that coming to a decision, coming to the decision to no longer practice it was also coupled with the fact that I was in church and in relationships with people, especially white people who were so blatantly racist mm -hmm. and really resistant to any conversations about the history of racism within Christianity, the present day oppressive practices that don't have to be this way. Like this is actually not in alignment with who the, the Jesus that I studied. I studied him from a like 
a historical figure as well as a spiritual and nothing that you're saying is adding up. So that motivated me to just get even, just even more curious, more curious. I want to know, I started getting curious around tithing and what does that even mean? And why don't like everything. So then everything was up for grabs. And so that for me, it was extremely disorienting at first because everything that I had really built my life on, I was holding up and saying, do I want this? Is this, is this me? Is this what I really want? While also still actively working in advocacy and teaching. And, and so I firmly believe in practicing what I teach. So I teach my students to question everything and to exp you know get curious. And so I had to also do that too. It helped me unpack anti-fat beliefs. It helped me unpack homophobic beliefs. Like it helped, it helped me unpack things that are operating underneath and then you say, oh, wait a minute, that's actually not how I want to operate in the world. So mm -hmm. it, was, it was extremely disorienting though. I remember feeling like, am I gonna go to hell? And then I'm like, do I believe in hell? Like, like <laughs> it's just, is this hell? <laughs> you know? it's, right. It was a lot. So it sounds like these systems, right, that are built probably very intentionally, maybe some of them unintentionally, but to support like American capitalism, the way things have worked, like those systems are are really in place to keep the status quo as they are. Yep. And so when you started to dismantle the religious one, you gave yourself the freedom to dismantle any system that had been delivered to you yeah. as a system that you should ascribe to. And, exactly. and so at what point did that really turn to race? How did it go from the religion? For me, because I'm a black woman, it was always about race. Right, right. It's always about race. One of the books that really opened this up for me that I read is called The Color of Compromise. It's by a black Christian theologian, which I still am wondering like, how are you still practicing Christianity after doing all this research and writing this book? Because this was the book that did it for me to say no to this for, um, for me. But just, it talks about the history of, of racism in, the, in Christianity, in the at least westernized Christianity in the United States. And so it was always about race. It's always about race. It's never not about race. And I think what was really interesting was learning about, for example, the history of anti-fatness and anti-blackness and understanding the pursuit of thinness and how that has been used as a way to distinguish white folks from black folks and to justify this racial hierarchy. And that motivated me to get really curious about my relationship with my body and my relationship with food and to really actively work to heal that. And so capitalism is another is another layer to that and understanding how the the system was is rooted in slavery in the United States the the operation of it is rooted in chattel slavery and so when i think about that and i think about my ancestors being forced to perform labor unpaid labor in the most heinous conditions and how the practices implemented during that time have evolved and are still showing up today 
I am very much actively working to be aware of how I pressure myself and how I engage with work, with my time, with other people, and just also the way that we perpetuate it and uphold it. And, and so it's, it's, it's definitely a process that requires a lot of compassion. And like I say, curiosity and compassion, because it's really easy to uncover something about yourself that you see is aligned with systems of oppression that cause significant harm to people and to feel shame and to feel like, oh my gosh, I'm a terrible person. How could I be this way? Blah, blah, blah. But that's not really conducive to growth. It really stalls you. And so it takes a lot of compassion and acknowledging like, these are not my beliefs. I didn't establish these beliefs. I didn't establish these systems. However, I've internalized them. And depending on your identity, you are holding some level of access and power because of these systems. So what do I do next? And that's the part where you can get out of the shame and get more into the healing and the action. And so how do you teach like, what is that rubric? Like, how do we start to do that? Well, it's a very, it's a very full process. I'll say that. So for example, mm -hmm. we have a program called Unity Over Comfort. And it's this process. Oh, wait, wait, that's great. Say that again. Unity Over Comfort. It's, it's that, that girl. It's that girl. It really is an incredible. <laughs> it's People have told me it literally has changed their lives. It's designed to help people understand what it is we're talking about. Because if we can't get, so I, the very first lesson is on terms. And we talk about different terms, like, you know, what is racism? What is white supremacy? What is black liberation? Like we, so that we can be on the same sheet of music. And from those, those type of like building blocks, we understand, we start, we explore history of chattel slavery in the United States. And people are so shocked to learn the things that we teach them because so much is removed from the curriculums in school. And that's very intentional, it's very deliberate. So I, I actually have a black professor from California who actually put the whole lecture series together on history of chattel slavery in the US and that's a part of the program. But we talk about what is like, what is white supremacy? What does it look like? How does it function? How, how do we uphold? Like, what are the beliefs that we like? We I really get specific. I want people to understand that these are real tangible things that we can tackle. We talk about what does it look like to be a white person in relationship with black folks and how do you show up in those relationships? in an affirming way, because when I think about my relationships with white women, for example, most of them have been really terrible and not because that person actively sought out ways to cause me pain and suffering, but because they weren't doing their work. Mm -hmm. And so when you're in, interacting in these kind of relationships where there's already a power dynamic that exists and you're not doing your work, the harm is inevitable. So we have those conversations. We talk about healing, like it's a whole process for people and we peeling back one layer at a time. I give them a tool on how to deal with their shame that comes up, the, the belief so that you can get back to focusing. It's a very involved process because this work requires a commitment to healing. 
And anyone who's ever really embarked on healing as, as a journey and, and a, a commitment knows that that is not a fun time all the time. No. It absolutely feels good at times, but it is, it's gruesome. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Can we go back and double click for a second on black and white female friendships? Oh. Because... Oh. 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 <laughs> because... Ooh. So... Three of my best friends in the world are black women. And then I am have very close friendships with other black women. And this is actually what drew me to you in the first place when I, 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 I can't, I found you on social media. I can't remember how. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I started reading the things that you were talking about. And I, I really, I really encourage everybody listening to follow you on social media because you are so in the best way provocative for white people. Like (laughs) it's so good. It really, like when I started reading your posts and, you know, and the discourse that you had in the comments with people, I was like, this is fucking brilliant. Like you're approaching this in a way that sort of like just tears the, the wallpaper off. And it really caused, you know, for me, a whole series of, of, of thinking around, like, how have I internalized this white supremacy and how am I like, what am I doing in my relationships with my black friends that I'm not aware of or where that, where there's not, where there's a disparity or like I've internalized stuff. They've internalized stuff. And I, I really would love to just spend a little time understanding, like, how do you in interactions or like in relationship, how, how do I keep that at the forefront all the time? And, and then like the weird wrinkle to that is, but, and then am I, but then am I holding race between us all the time? If I'm thinking about it. Or is that a very important piece of -hmm. the friendship? Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you a question. Have your Black friends ever told you something that you've said or done to them that is racist? No. Does that mean they're not being honest with me? Listen, I can't speak for them, but I'm, I'm going, I ask you that question because just because you've not been told or been made aware doesn't mean that it hasn't happened or that it's not happening. Of course. And chances are, now I'm gonna say this. So I teach anti-racism education. I teach a variety 
of topics related to that. I've been in a relationship with white women since I was a little girl. I am a very direct, uh, I believe in speaking my mind, and I still have to weigh the cost if I decide to tell a white person, especially someone who I consider a friend, something that they've done is racist. Because we know that y'all can respond in such a way that can cause significant harm that mm. I then have to go and settle and deal with myself. So when I was back in my Christian days, I had three best best friends and we were all close. Two of them were, two or they are, two of them are, are white and one is black. One of them was in the room, two of them were, were in the room with me when I gave birth. So very, very close relationship. And I remember one time she and I, one of them, it was a white girl, and we were walking out of the building together. And it was her and it was me, we were walking out and this lady came up to me, who we both know, and she went to grab my hair and just kind of like fluffed her hands through my hair. And I was so stunned, I just was like, whoa. And anyone listening here, I hope understands, at least maybe on a basic level, do not do that. And there's a whole like history and a conversation around why specifically not doing that to black people, especially. But I was so stunned. And so we, we walked out into the parking garage or the parking lot and we got in her car and she didn't say a word to me about it. And I then brought it up. Because she was uncomfortable or she knew it, it was... I don't think she probably recognized how violating it was. Which is racist in and of itself, if she it's didn't recognize it. Right. right. And so she didn't bring it up. She didn't mention it. She didn't. And so then I brought it up. And the conversation went south very fast. Wow. And I remember being so like, even just thinking about that kind of, I could feel myself just feeling a little emotional because I remember feeling so sad that this, like this was an opportunity to center and to care for me. Like she didn't, she didn't touch my hair and she's actually never touched my hair. She didn't tell a woman. So it wasn't her that did it, but you witnessed it. And when I told you how painful it was that your response to this is now centering yourself and, and that that felt so disappointing to me. And so an affirming relationship with a with a like I have my best friend is white. She's taken pretty much every one of my classes. If that were to happen with us, what I'm pretty confident would happen immediately is she would ask me are you okay? What do you need? And there have been times where I've called her and I say, this racist thing happened to me. I need you to take notes. And she's like, you got it. You know, like she, it, there's nothing I could, I, I couldn't, there's nothing I could ask for that she wouldn't be willing to figure out. And she's the only type of relationship I've had like that with a white woman. So that's just like one example. I had another interaction with a white woman who I considered a friend and she blatantly told me that she didn't see me as a, her black friend. She just saw me as her friend. 
And she suggested that I just needed to change my tone and that I would appeal to more white people if I changed my tone. Oh my God. And, you know, we, we argued back and forth about that. And I'm just like, I can't be in these type of relationships. How could you tell, how do you tell me a black woman that you don't see my blackness that in and of itself suggests that there is something about it that you feel uncomfortable about so much so that you want to ignore it or pretend as though there are times in which it doesn't matter. I'm black all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm always black, no matter where I go, I'm black. And I love that. I love being black. But when I have negative experiences, I'm always aware that my blackness is somehow being used as a reason to to engage in, in in harmful ways and i need my friends to understand that i don't need you to understand it from an experience standpoint but i need you to understand when i tell you that something racist happened i don't need you to argue back with me about well maybe i didn't i was looking at it the wrong way mm. i've had that happen with another best friend she She's like, well, maybe they didn't mean it that way. I'm, I don't need you to do that. Don't, don't ever do that. If I tell you that it's racist, then it's racist. We don't need, I don't need you to validate it. Why does a white person feel they are the expert on racism and, and can tell me what is and what isn't? I don't need that. It's a lot. We could, we can talk about. I actually have a couple podcast episodes where I talk about relationships with white women and, and friendship. I have two classes where I break it down because there are so many pieces to it. I have never felt safe to share about something racist that a white person has done until my current relationship with my, my best friend. Mm. I've never. So, so what is it about, what is it about the, the way that she shows up for you? The questions she asks that allows that relationship to flourish and yeah. to be so safe for you. Yeah, I actually had given up on white women relationships. So I've met her at a retreat where there were a lot of white girls. And I was like, what the hell? What did I give myself into? <laughs> and, <laughs> and we hit it off. And I had just decided right before coming to that retreat that I was done with relationships with white women. And so I told her, I said, listen, I don't know about this. I really like you. We had we had like a five hour layover in the airport and we were having the best time. And I was like, I really like you, but I don't know about this. I've been hurt so much in relationships with white women who ask me to compartmentalize my identity, who tone police me, who refuse to show up, who gaslight me, and the list goes on. So I don't know about this. And she was like, I, under I understand what you're saying. I respect what you're saying. And you know, we, we can take it slow. And she started taking my classes. She was in my programs and I treated her just like everyone else. When we have, when I have questions and I question them and I challenge them in classes, she was no exception. But what I, what I have experienced in this friendship, she doesn't only take my classes. She learns from other people too, which I highly recommend. What I appreciate is that she is fully aware of her identity as a white woman and what what that means and what that can mm. cause and what that what that can bring to a situation. For example, even when we're on when when we're on the phone and I'm like, hey, let's catch up. And she's like, you go first. I was like, well, you you go first. She's like, you are a black woman. 
you you my you're going you yes i'm making space for this <laughs> you know and it's just like even in the way that we talk about things she knows that for example you can't come to me complaining about a black woman to me like you you're not going to be able to do that with me it's not even a question and there so it's just it's the it's the limits it's the boundaries that because can i just ask you about that because like that's super interesting because right on a on a human level we're we're all human we all make mistakes or do something bad in the workplace or like annoy our coworkers and then we would go to our best friend and say hey like my coworker did something really inconsiderate but you're i think i i don't want to infer but like you're saying like that there's a framework that exists right that's like inherently racist in the country so therefore if if a friend comes to you and says like i'm having an issue with a coworker and the coworker happens to be black that even though they might have a legitimate issue with the person it's the the context and the framework in some way makes it so that you don't want to hear a white person that's for me personally everybody's yeah. got their own place but for me but i think that's super interesting i want to hear more about that i don't i don't want to hear a white woman complaining to me about a black person because well for one i i don't wish to hold space for you like that that's that's not a place that i wish to hold space for you to unpack your grievances with a black woman because quite likely there's going to be some anti-blackness that's going to seep through there i'm going to end up have to buffer and to educate or to because I have a hard time thinking of any potential example where I would want to do that. Like, I just, I can't, I can't even imagine, which is why white women need to be in relationships with other white women who are doing the work. So don't, so you don't turn into a whole coddling situation to be able to say, Hey, this is what's going on. This is how I'm feeling. What's the most affirming way to approach this? recognizing my privilege and my my opportunity to inflict mm. harm right right are white okay. women in, in relationships with other white women like that i don't I, i've seen it with my students but i've not seen it outside of the work that i do because mm. there's so much deterioration of community and the value of community with white supremacy like those mm. relationships dynamics are i'll say this i so I'm a black woman, right? So I experience massage noir. I, I experience sexism. I experience racism. However, I'm also cis. I'm a cis black woman. So I receive benefits at the expense of my black trans sisters. Mm -hmm. So in what way would it make sense for me to come to one of my trans sisters complaining to her about another trans woman, despite there being maybe something that that person did to me, that was, that was like, that's out of line, but she doesn't need to hold space for me like that. Right. See that that's a brilliant lesson, I think. <laughs> and something that's not, I would say frequently thought of for white people. Y'all don't think about a lot. That's the problem. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so sorry. Fuck. Y'all got, y'all got, y'all need we have we Let me problems. tell you something. 
let me tell you something. This is what I, I talked to my husband today at lunch. And I said, one of the things that I need white people to understand amongst many things is that you have not worked for everything you have. You haven't. Not you, Gwyneth, G-Baby. No. That's, your, that's your nickname, G-Baby. Okay, um, <laughs> but, but, but when white people, especially white people who have acquired a significant amount of wealth, say things like, well, I earned this. I work for everything I have. Mm. It's not true because you have things that you did not have to work for. And you have things mm -hmm. that because you didn't have to experience systems of oppression, you were allowed to have access to and were able to acquire and to build. And so you you have things, you have access, you have opportunities because of these different systems that were established by your ancestors that you continue to collect dividends from. Yeah. So at the very least, you could re redistribute your resources. Mm -hmm. At the very least, you could be ensuring that the economic wealth that you are building, you are avoiding the legacy of hoarding and instead redistributing. Those are conversations that white mm -hmm. people do not like me talking about. They don't want to have it. They don't want to have it because money is power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 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 Oh my God. I have so many questions for you. It's really, we have a lot of things to talk about. It's we have a lot of things to talk about. I think, you know, one before, before we totally move off female friendships and like, I, I, I would love to ask you a little bit about this idea of feminism versus white feminism that you talk about, like you say that white feminism can perpetuate racial inequity. Oh, yeah. Can we talk about that? I just feel like white feminism ain't it. Like mm -hmm. it's not. I really want the white women who are listening to this, who are probably getting really uncomfortable and, and have maybe even getting ready to turn it off. Don't do it, to, girls. Don't, don't do, it. do it. Come on, girl. Come on, girl. <laughs> <laughs> Come on back. I want you to learn about your history. Mm. And I want you to learn about your history of your people who actively participated in upholding the system of legalized chattel slavery. Mm. And upheld the institutions that were developed in response and in relation to that institutionalized racism. Right. And when people, like, I want you to understand that you were not the damsel in distress. You were mm -hmm. not the innocent bystander while these like white men were out here just doing all the dirt. You were right alongside them, your people. And I, I don't, I, there's a narrative about white women being fragile and innocent and pure that I want you to understand where that came from. I want you to understand how that actually is an, an example of misogyny and, and the patriarchal attempt to rebrand white women in an effort to pit them against white women or black women. And so I want you to understand your your history and 
to you might become enraged you might feel like wait a minute i've been i've been accepting this as something that is good and positive but actually it works against my best interest and the interests of others but you are so disillusioned to pursue what white men have mm -hmm. and to do what they have done in order to have it that the idea of examining the level of dehumanization that it requires for you to accept for yourself is not something of interest mm. so white feminism is white women white women trying to beat the system not to to tear it down but to make it work for them mm. how do i get more women at the table well that really is code for how do i get more white women at this table white women i i, I remember this i was listening i was reading this book and the author said as a white woman and the author said that women got the right to vote in 1920. And I said, the white is silent because black women didn't get the right, right. to vote until the Civil Rights Act in the 60s. So when you say what when you say women got the right to vote, you are already letting me know that mm. you attach womanhood to whiteness. You know, like there's so much to learn and unpack about this, but to really think about what are the ways that you are trying to gain access to what white men have. When I think about the authors of the Combi High River Collective that say once black women are free, all of us will be free because what they're telling us is that black women exist at every single system, exist at the intersection of every single system of oppression. So mm -hmm. if black women are free, that means every system of oppression has been eliminated mm -hmm. so that's why we center the most marginalized but unfortunately white women see that as exclusionary versus mm -hmm. understanding that that's actually intersectionality thank you for the work kimberly crenshaw intersectionality by design you're going to benefit you are going to thrive when i'm thriving but if i start with you it won't ever reach me right absolutely mm -mm. yeah okay. I mean, simply put, if white women would listen and, fo and follow the leadership of, mm -hmm. of black women, especially black trans women, mm -hmm. we would be all right. We would be, everything <laughs> would be all right. Like black trans women have been at the foundation of this work from, from the beginning, like, and they are the most marginalized, yes. the most marginalized in every way, housing, finances, from employment, healthcare, you name it. And so if we meet their needs first and ensure that they can live freely and fully in their humanity, everybody wins. So everybody. as a parent, how do we, how do we start there? Like if, if, if I was going to, you know, focus on this from like through a parenting lens and start with black trans women, what, what do you, and, and especially being, having been a very devout Christian, and I, I imagine having to travel quite a distance to get to a place where you can be a true champion of trans women, period, right? Like, yeah, it, for me, it never really settled. It, did, it never settled in my system. The teachings, the, about, you know, this, this is sin, you know, this is that, that never really settled in my system, but there were some beliefs there that I had to uproot and I was glad, like it was good riddance, you know? 
it, it, that that part wasn't like, oh no, I really want to believe that. No, no, thank you. But that's another thing. We have a program on that where we talk about white culture parenting, and you know how do we have these conversations? So I have two kids. My kids are young. They're thirteen and ten. And my daughter came to me the other day. She's the ten year old. And she was like, mommy, I want to put a presentation together to teach to my friends about gender because they don't know that there's more to gender than just girl and boy. And I said, well, that's good. We can work on that. We can we can work on it together. And I started just asking her some different questions. Like, well, what do you know already? And, you know, because we have these conversations. We talk about the gender binary. We talk about toxic masculinity. We talk about black feminism. We talk about not assuming people's pronouns and assuming gender. Like we have these conversations and it's not like a sit down, mm -hmm. let me teach you everything. It's whenever anything that's of value to you. So you have values that are important to you, G baby, that, <laughs> <laughs> that you actively socialize your children around. Right. We all do. We all we do. do. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about, okay, well, what are the values that are really important to me in my in my family? Maybe it's something like being on time, for example. Let's just give an example, like yep. being on time, even though time is a construct and it be hella anti-black. So anyway, <laughs> anyway, I love so, you. Okay, time is really important to me. So you go about instilling that value through numerous mechanisms. You implement mm -hmm. different things in place. You have consequences for not upholding it. You have rewards, like all those things. And it's really hard, however, as a parent to take on anti-racism work as a, as a core value, black liberation as a value, centering and, and honoring black trans, black trans women as a value if you yourself don't truly carry that as a value and you're lacking. We're never gonna know everything, especially especially if it's not our lived experience. I'm not a black trans woman, so I can never speak for a black trans woman. I can never even desire to do that. I would never even desire to do that, mm -hmm. but I can learn from them what hurts, what they need, how do I show up, and then orient myself and my life accordingly, realizing that I'm gonna make mistakes, hopefully not at their expense, and to learn swiftly. Kids learn by us modeling for them mm. more than anything. Just like we talked earlier before we started about Spanish, you know, you can learn, take Spanish in high school, college and all the things, but it's not until you're in that culture that you realize one, that you don't know as much as you think you know, and you don't even know how to order a drink, yet alone <laughs> have a full conversation. What to get is what? So I, that's the part where it's like, we have to practice and model what we're actually trying to teach our children. And that takes a lot of honesty too, because my kids will come to me with questions. And I'm like, I don't know, let's look into it. I don't know the answer to that. Or I'll assume someone's gender when I'm telling a story and they'll, and they'll correct me. And mm -hmm. I tell them from the beginning, you can always correct me. I am not the expert. I'm learning and growing too. Mm -hmm. So they will, they'll, they'll, we correct each other. Because it's we're all committed to the learning and growing. Mm. Can I ask you if it's okay before we go a little bit about how you take care of yourself after doing this work? I love that question because I love taking care of myself. I love me. I love me so much. Aww. I'm like, that's so inspiring. 
Oh, I love myself. <laughs> <laughs> there she go on the floor again, y'all. So, ooh, so many things. Like for one, I have a black therapist. Mm. I had therapy yesterday. She's she's wonderful. She in the, she's in the states. You do it on Zoom. Yeah, I do it on Zoom. I've been with her since 2020. I love, love working with my therapist. I have a morning ritual that I love that includes things like tapping, meditation, what prayers. Kind? I'm still sorting through who I'm praying to exactly. Ancestors, spirit, Black Jesus. You definitely <sighs> wasn't white. I can tell you that. No, no. Good Lord. So so my I love my morning ritual, reading stretching and when i stretch i i recite things that i'm um, grateful for mm. um, i do joyful movement everything from running i don't let me be clear sprints that are short short and slow so they probably don't even count as sprints. <laughs> <laughs> more like jogs but <laughs> i walk i lift you know yoga i eat things that taste good mm. okay so my dad is a chef. So I grew up with good food. Okay, baby G mm. or G baby. <laughs> I don't know about you, because white people, y'all, y'all food don't, you know, don't be a, don't be that good a lot of times. So I don't my know. My food is good. My food is. I good. don't know. I don't know. Come over. I'm gonna make you dinner, and you're gonna tell me if my food is good or not. What is? I will not lie to you. What is it gonna be, and what seasoning? It's gonna be amazing, and you're gonna love it. You're gonna give me your list of dietary requirements. Listen, you're not gonna cook it. You're probably gonna have some <laughs> lovely, delicious person somewhere else making it. I don't know, but no, I don't, I don't trust no. your food. Okay. I don't. Okay, I, don't. I I challenge you. That's one thing I don't trust. Okay. So, I just, <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, I eat food that's good. My husband and I have a great relationship. We enjoy sex with each other. Nice. You know, just, we, we, we go on date days pretty much once a week. Nice. Um, I ask for help. Right. I ask what for is help. that? What does that look like? Oh, I'm an expert at asking for help. Basically, I try to find a way for help. To, to, for anything to be easier, how can I make something easier? Do I need a system? Do I do I need some tool or gadget or whatever? Like I was refilling the water filter. I was like, I don't like this. I got to figure out an easier way, like anything. But I mean, it also looks like hiring someone who comes and cleans my home because I, I do not like cleaning, but I love a clean home, you know, but also just specifically asking, saying, hey, I have this need. Can you help me? And you can you can you can't you can't okay is. this is i swear this is my last question because i know i'm over what is one thing that i can do or say or practice or say to myself every morning to work on black liberation or anti-racism mm, i would say what is so then you could ask yourself what is one specific at least one specific tangible action i can take that will specifically benefit black people so you can read all day long lord jesus y'all been sitting and reading enough mm -hmm. okay 
Okay. It's time for action. And I'm going to tell you what you could do. You could put money into people's pockets. Mm -hmm. Money is a huge, Mm -hmm. huge aspect to this work. Economic justice and repair is major, but don't control it. So a lot of times white people will say, well, I want to make sure that they do this with it, or I want to make sure it goes to this, this, listen, stop trying to control it. Mm -hmm. If you, you find you a place, there's, there's no shortage of people who you can put cash in their pocket. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the black businesses that I invest in, I don't, I think, I think that's important. I think get like investing in black business is super important without control, right? Just like without the control. Exactly. Because that's the part. So I'm gonna tell you what you ask yourself. You also say, how can I invest in Monique's business today? How can I invest in Monique's business today? That's a question. Because we do work, we're doing global work. We work with people all over the world and this ain't cheap, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, we've seen a significant dip of interest this year, especially across mm. the board. And that's been felt, you know. And so I'm like, where where is the where is the support? Where is mm. the support? You know? Okay. And people can everybody listening can sign up for your classes as well. Everybody and their mama. Monique, it is such a pleasure to talk to you. You are <laughs> an amazing teacher, presence, provocateur. I just, I, I have so much respect for you. And this was really fun. This was fun. No, but I really appreciate you sharing your platform, amplifying my work. It's so important. It's beyond important. It's necessary. And it is very necessary. Thank so you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Monique Melton. As I said, I highly recommend following Monique on Instagram at MoMotivate, M-O-E, Motivate. And you can sign up for her online classes and follow her community by heading to shinebrightschool.com. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.